Hey everyone, Jose Nino here. And today I'm joined by one of the more polemical anonymous accounts in the social media space. And that is the great Red Hawk. How's your day been, man? It's been good, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. Right before we start, uh, quickly tell my audience your story. Yeah, I guess I'm... Uh, wow, I mean, where to go back? I mean, I was a lurker on um, the political internet for, uh, God, almost like a decade uh, now. Only really started voicing opinions maybe in the last uh, five or six years or so. And then when I really got started in the political sphere, and at the same time I'm on like the political internet, I'm also you know, getting into manosphere circles uh, as well. And both these kind of reached a zenith around like um, late 2020, early 2021. And that's when I actually started making like content in the mainstream. Uh, I appeared on a lot of streams with um, a friend of mine called uh, Academic Agent from the Dissonant Rights Sphere. And I ended up just started making uh, content shortly after that. And then now I've basically just hang out with a bunch of the like rule zero guys. Like I'm a uh, Ryan stone, uh, Jack Napier, you know, all, all those uh, gentlemen. And then uh, at the same time, I also got in tight with a bunch of the distant rights here uh, in America. And we ended up founding the company known as uh, the old glory club. So we focus on a bunch of uh, right wing news and, um, you know, fraternal organizations and such in the spirit of uh, like the American founding. That's a lot of ground you're covering in. And that's one of the reasons I brought you on here because one thing I really appreciate about your work. It's that it's multifaceted in nature because you cover politics and intersexual dynamics from a thoroughly non-PC standpoint, which is a major plus in my book, as far as I'm concerned. And it's ultimately like a, a breath of fresh air in like this like entire discourse ecosystem that's just contaminated by political correctness and woke takes. Now, um, how did you first get involved in like politics and just following political content in general? There's a lot of guys who kind of came to the uh, political internet, mostly just through uh, being online at an early age. And, you know, you run across like what people like to call is like the old wild, wild west of, um, you know, the internet where like uh, 4chan was still really huge and everything. And obviously the great meme war of 2016. And that's not really how uh, my journey started from the right. I was raised in a like traditional conservative household. I was always like, well, politically right. We just voted Republican and something that we did. And funny enough, you know, like when the podcast fear was taking off, you know, sometime in the mid 2010s, I just ended up getting, versed into people like Jordan Peterson, people like the Daily Wire types. And just through, over the years, you know, you go on a political journey. You know, I mean, I spent a lot of time in libertarian circles. I'm still good friends with uh, Scott Horton over at the Libertarian Institute to this day because I spent a lot of time in those circles. He's fantastic. I've had him on my show. Great guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah, totally. Um, really, really smart. Knows his stuff uh, for sure as it relates to uh, foreign policy. But yeah, so I spent a lot of time in libertarian circles and then you know, realizing the issues in that ideology is basically where I'm at now at this point in what people will call the online right, the new right, the dissonant right. Uh, you know, there's like a new name for it every single day. But yeah, so I did not come to it by watching, you know, like Bronze Age Perber posts, like, you know, uh, <laughs> frog talking points on uh, Twitter. That's not how I came to the right. It was just a very slow process. Yeah, that's interesting. I came into this entire political scene really through, I'd say like Ron Paul, actually, the more I think about it now, like the origin story, because 
And it is also online too. This was around 07. I was on a sports forum and I would go into like the off topic section and there would be this dude who was just constantly posting like Ron Paul videos, especially during the Republican primary debates. And I was like hooked, um, especially after I saw the video where Ron Paul was talking about foreign policy and he had that kerfuffle with Rudy Giuliani on the, at the time. It's actually one of the moments I'd say a good deal of people who got into the non-interventionist foreign policy space were hooked as well when Ron Paul had that exchange with Rudy Giuliani. And then I also had a guy, there was like, uh, for my dad's like accountant, this guy was a big like Alex Jones guy. Always talk about that. He even talked about him before I got into politics, but I never really bothered to look into that type of content until I learned about Ron Paul. And that's where I became like really hardcore. And I started following people like Tom Woods and that ilk. But it definitely changed over time because I, I started out as kind of like a Pat Buchanan, like Ron Paul hybrid. But then I've gotten much more America first in terms of like my politics and more nationalist in nature because I have worked in kind of like the libertarian ink conservatism ink space before and i got jaded by that and i saw that how it actually became much more corrupt over time and more often than not it served as like a, an, an alternative wing to the political establishment if you will yeah absolutely you know uh people be familiar with the term like the uniparty and such yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, most of your establishment conservatives and conning people are literally just um, there as useful tools for the regime as a ratchet to continue to pull the system ever leftward. And unfortunately, even though there are some very good thinkers uh, in the libertarian movement, unfortunately, they lack some serious uh, gatekeeping in their uh, communities, and they just simply do not have uh, any political power as things currently stand. Maybe that will change in the future, but I'm not exactly holding out hope that you know there's going to be a massive sway in the democratic process to vote for Dave Smith for president or something. Yes, I've noticed this over the years that whenever like a liberal it applies for a lot of organizations in general but any conservative or libertarian organization that doesn't have thorough gatekeeping that keeps especially culturally leftist subversives from entering the org they eventually get subverted uh i'm not going to name the nonprofit i work for but when i was hired on board a place i saw it firsthand and i was actually thankful i got canned from that org because the way it went was just like awful and it is like really difficult to find organizations in the libertarian space that are very like switched on and free from a, a lot of this fuckery because I could name like the Mises Institute. They've always been solid. I've contributed for them in the past and they're great. And that's like a very paleo libertarian type of institution. So yeah, they do great work uh, over there. I got plenty of friends that um, spent a lot of time uh, through Mises U organizations and such. And uh, yeah, Jeff Dice uh, does an amazing job with those guys. Yeah, they've been good from the outset. I've never really uh, complained. I mean, I have some disagreements here and there for policy, but when it comes to how they're aligned, you you know these guys are not like subversives. But when you start going into more mainstream or very doctrinaire libertarian spaces, that's when it gets it can get kind of murky and outright like just spurgy and bad, in my opinion. That's why I've always um maintain some distance from being like a card-carrying member. 
would you say like it'd be safe to say that your politics would be like America first nationalist in nature? Yeah, definitely on that spectrum. Uh, at this point, I just like to call myself uh, right wing. Essentially, you know, I I don't like the, exactly the label of conservative because you oh, know, conservative yeah. comes with a bunch of connotations in uh, our country. With like, well, what have these guys conserved since Buckley? They've literally done nothing except help the left every single step of the way. So I don't care for uh, that label. I also obviously have some uh, disagreements with. Let's call it like, a, you know, ethnonats, uh, we'll call that. Obviously, there's some uh, disagreements there. But yeah, so I just like the label of right uh, at this point. Yeah, that um, that is a good point. Some people have described my views as like ethno-nationalist at times, but um, I do tend to more I identify as like a right-winger because, yeah, the conservative movement in general is ultimately like an establishment movement that merely consolidates the gains of the prevailing progressive regime, but it does not do anything to um, scale it back. And it oftentimes like augments it in unique ways too, which is why I don't want to be a part of it. And on uh, the key issues such as like mass migration and foreign policy that invade the world, invite the world ethos, it's particularly useless in containing that. And that's why I've always considered myself like a nationalist, dissident right or whatever, but I've never identified as a conservative. Like even when I was like a libertarian, I would take maybe some right wing views like on like abortion and like marriage and whatnot. But I um, never really identified with like the entire package of conservatism because my foreign policy and immigration views would definitely put me well to like the nationalist right of your mainstream conservatism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say probably my biggest split from my libertarian days at this point is disagreement with things like the nap. I think, Oh yeah. Yeah. I think much like what uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe says uh, in his vision of libertarianism is probably the only circumstance in which that uh, philosophy would ever have any legs and any chance of working. But, and this also comes into critiques of, uh, you know, the American empire these days, somebody like um uh, like Scott who's a brilliant guy will just be anti-interventionist in every single way and i agree that america's track record over the last 100 years has been horrible in this regard however as like an american first person i'm not i'm not immediately like when you say american empire i'm i don't immediately recoil from that i recoil from it because what the american empire currently is is basically just sticking up the rainbow flag on every single continent uh, on the entire planet. However, if they're, you know, the American empire was actually ran in my interests, we might be talking a different story. Yeah. I'm um, more of like a uh, old school, like Monroe doctrine type of geopolitical thinker where I'm pretty much non-interventionist when it comes to same like any type of affairs when it is dealing with Europe and Asia for that matter. But when it comes to the Western hemisphere, I do see a role for like the U S to keep like trade routes secure and also having like a really strong Southern border and maritime border. But generally speaking, um, I tend to eschew that. And I actually kind of agree that uh, American empire I don't really recoil at the concept per se. It's mostly the type of ruling class that we have that's running it that makes me 
hate it because they're, they're pursuing policies that either serve like the interests of certain groups, like whether it's like Zionist or like um, really degenerate NGOs and other groups that I think are completely detached from the historic American nation. And it's like founding stock. And that's why I generally like oppose it. But if you had like a continental like US that was run by elites that did follow like non-interventionist precepts and maintain like order both domestically and within the Western hemisphere, I'd be more down with that project because it's an upgrade over this type of like scheme that we have here that does nothing to enhance uh, middle America and its welfare. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's funny when you hear uh, like criticisms from what was the old left. They don't you know, there basically is no old left at this point. They're all just, you know, Wokies at this point. But somebody like Noam Chomsky would go out and say, like, oh, America's issue with the Iraq war is that we go in for the oil. When the funny joke of it is, is that that actually would be kind of based. But America doesn't even do that. Um, America goes in, rids, you know, terrorists that we had funded from previous wars from the oil fields and then give the oil fields back to whatever group we're currently backing at this time. It would actually be kind of, you know, amazing if the oil actually ended up in, uh, American hands and American interests and they kind of ruled over them, kind of like, um, you know, 18th century British, uh, viceroys would rule over like India or something. But no, like the, our empire doesn't even do that. It has no interest for the current citizens back home and it's just completely a globalist project. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I contrast that to like Rome, where like the Roman soldiers, like whatever, like conquered territories they presided over, they would get like some type of benefit from it, like the property or at least like a bounty from it. But like these days, it's really all about trying to transform these third world backwaters into like facsimiles of like the US to remake the world. And it's like this functional image to also... One other thing, too, where I've parted waves with libertarianism, and it's also true of conservatives, too, as well, is the just overall worship of corporations, because I take a very Schmittian approach to politics of Carl Schmitt, where any type of policies that like enhance the power of institutions or individuals that work against our interests like should be categorically opposed and that's why i don't like a lot of corporate deregulation now because it benefits a lot of companies that push woke policies that in many ways they act as like pinkertons for the prevailing regime uh the political regime exactly this is how they do such a good job of obfuscating uh the law at every single possible turn they will just fork over these, you know, affirmative action laws or any other uh, laws that they want to pass. They'll just have the corporations that basically are the strong arm of the state at this point. And it's like, oh, it's a private company. It could do whatever it wants. And you still have conservatives, you know, repeating uh, this tired old canard thinking that it's a private company. It could do what it wants. The like Ace Hardware store run down the street by the 80 year old guy who knows every single tool in that shop for 50 years is radically different than the guy who's working at Goldman Sachs. Yet these are supposed to, you know, both be uh, rounded together as like uh, we're the party of business and conservatives are supposed to support uh, low tax tax cuts for businesses and all this kind of stuff, even though these people are literally just you're literally just funding your own subversion. Uh, 100%. And yeah, there's a distinction to be made between like small and medium sized businesses or even like big businesses that have like a nationalist orientation. 
Because if the ownership class of this business are like these like transnational elites that are effectively behaving as rootless cosmopolitans, these people do not care about like serving the American interests. They only serve themselves and rake the profits in for themselves and don't really pay much heed to the wants and desires of like the middle American workers and the broader community that they supposedly serve really they serve foreigners or just like this very like narrow cabal of transnational elite and that's um that's one problem i have and this is where you see ultimately establishment libertarianism supporting like nafta and crap like that like these so-called free trade agreements that are really in my opinion are just stepping stones to creating like a north american union and these supranational entities that do not represent like the will of like the historic American nation. And that's one thing to consider here with regards to um, when we talk about deregulation and going uh, pursuing free market reforms, I, I'm all in favor of that for like entities that actually provide value and that uphold their values. But when it comes to these very parasitic type of businesses and other types of organizations like no this is where i'd argue that a very like prudential nationalist regime would use state power in a wise manner to curtail their influence yeah absolutely i mean i guess uh another big issue here is the kind of like the libertarian concept of what the state uh really is supposed to be and so much of their analysis really just goes down to the the state is just nothing more than an economic zone you know for a uh, transaction to take place it has really generally no concept of you know the actual history of a people of a nation the actual well-being of those people living within it as long as it maximizes my freedom it's like well i don't really know if it's a great fantastic thing to legalize drugs all throughout the country and then walk around every single street corner in a major city in america at this point and just every single corner smells like weed you know it's like that's not really something you get out of like a, a gdp scale but that is like a quality of life thing it's like, yeah. do I really want to be walking around cities seeing people doped out all the time when I want to walk around with kids? You know, I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, pursuing policies for the sake of boosting the big red line is not a political project I will take seriously because there are far, uh, there's a lot of stuff you can't really measure either that I think has to be taken into account when you talk about these type of policies because I do want like a quality of, uh, a high quality of life where people are actually like functional. Yeah. There are certain cultures where you can make the case that, yeah, drug legalization um, might not have that much of an impact. Like go like the Netherlands or whatever, like they've had like legal drugs for some time, but like, there's like actually like a discipline, like North European ethos to those type of cultures that is still for the most part, like respected. But here in the U S just have this weird, like tower, uh, tower of Babel, multicultural, like hodgepodge where people, don't really care about um, maintaining like a clean public commons or maintaining some degree of discipline. People are just here engaging in high time preference behavior and not caring about like the interests of like their fellow man. So I just really don't trust these very like hedonistic reforms here and there. Like, yeah, you can make an argument that the war on drugs, like the way the federal government has prosecuted it is like largely failed, but like pursuing like a one size fits all, like, legalize all drugs solution for like every 50 states i'm very skeptical of that because there's gonna be a lot of states in my opinion given like the demographic makeup of them and the type of elites that run them i think are just turned into total chaos zones whereas other states you might see like negligible effects but yeah 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of them would just turn into like uh, thiefdoms uh, overnight. You know, you just, I mean, look at like uh, San Francisco uh, right now, where it's just like the richest people in the entire country next to the absolute poorest people uh, in the entire country. And the cities are just going completely to hell. I mean, by all metrics, America should be, you know, the best it's ever been, uh, according to like the line go up people. I mean, our GDP is higher than it's ever been before. But look around. I mean, uh, more Americans are living paycheck to paycheck than ever. Our crime rates is, are the highest in uh, 30 plus years at this point. Everyone can kind of see and smell in the air that things aren't going well here. Well, and like, the, what's the idea? It's like, I'll oh, just give people uh, more freedom. It's like, well, if people are depressed and aren't successful, uh, in this current system and don't have any hope. I mean, you just give them a bunch of freedom. It's like, okay, uh, what are they going to do with it? Just rot away. Oh yeah. It's funny. Cause I, um, I'm actually originally from like a third world country of Venezuela. And when I hear people say like the U S is going um third world, I will say this far of uh, some respects. When you see these like disparities, it's true, but at least in a lot of third world countries and they're like, there's a fence there's actual social capital and people are like accustomed to like the really shitty lifestyles and the cultural dysfunction there, but it's been like acclimated to it. But in the U S you have like a really atomized culture, which makes this like even worse. These like kind of like uh third world social economic developments, like amplified where nobody cares about like the quality of life and people are becoming like much more lonely and bowling alone, if you will, to quote Robert Putnam's, the title of Robert Putnam's book that makes like this stuff like much worse because it creates like the conditions for huge power vacuums to be assumed by all manner of like, whether it's like oligarchical corporations, NGOs, or even like outright criminal entities. Cause I write about this in numerous cases where you are seeing like the creations of like mini Gotham's like all over due to these lacks crime policies coupled with other like anarcho-tyrannical measures that disarm um, lawful people or prevent them from acting in self-defense against criminals. And this kind of stuff is going to be a huge shock for most Americans because of the simple fact there's not much social capital in the U.S. these days. So people don't really have many institutions to fall back to mediating institutions to use to check the, these type of developments. Yeah. And what's so interesting about um, uh, the libertarian argument in many of these things is that it's almost like they kind of see uh, the issues. They just won't like actually take steps to uh, fix them in a meaningful way. One of the best examples I have of this is that when any time like a leftist will have like an argument for a libertarian or something saying like, oh, we don't need welfare. And the libertarian will say, well, for the longest time in the world, we had um, uh, churches and such to pick up the slack for people in communities when they had issues. But in the same breath, the libertarians will say, oh, well, we should totally legalize, you know, Satanism, atheism, everything else is a direct contrast to this thing, which they acknowledge was useful for social flourishing and all these issues. And again, this is where Hans Hermann Hoppe comes in, who, again, in my opinion, is pretty much like the only libertarian who ever got his own philosophy correct. Yes, you know, so, agreed. So, and it's just, it's just populated with all these little contradictions almost uh, everywhere you look um, throughout the uh, philosophy. Oh, yes. Um Especially under like the culturally like leftist libertarians or anarchists that are with leftist inclinations, these people will go as far as to say that churches and civil society 
uh, institutions that set forward certain policies or internal regulations among their community are engaging in forms of like unjustified coercion. And it's like, dude, like you guys are just not really just not getting it. You, you guys just want like this total free flowing society that doesn't have any type of checks on antisocial behavior. Like this is not sustainable. It really is like just asking for really dysfunctional entities to come in and take power effectively because like nature abhors a vacuum. And this is one reason why I can't really make really stay like hardcore libertarian or anarchist on these issues because it's just like a denial of like human nature and like basic statecraft to like be attacking these type of institutions and whatnot. Because at the end of the day, you have to have like some degree of order at all levels of governance from like the household to like your political leadership. That's just like undeniable. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate a lot of like where they're coming from because like uh, from their starting positions, they're not exactly wrong. However, you just need to get to a point where absolutely everybody agrees. Like, we're oh, we're just not going to aggress on people and we're going to have a balanced budget. And basically you can't just have this in your own country because then another nation is going to use other tactics to subvert yours or just outright take it over or aggress upon you. So you're not going to last very long if you gain any semblance of true power. Um, so that's the first problem. You have to basically convert everyone in the entire world to your method of thought. And unfortunately, there are uh, groups of people throughout the entire world, you know, and this is not just broken down by uh, race or class or anything. You know, some people are just, you know, stupid. You know, not everyone's ever going to come to uh, your conclusion of things. So you're basically just starting at a at a complete non-starter. And so when you get to that point, you're like, oh, okay. so the only way to enforce my opinion on everybody else is basically through uh, conquest, which is one way that some like very far like more right wing people would have to address that issue. Or you just come back to a semblance of right wing, which the right stands for order. And now you're like, okay, we're part of order means we have to restrict some freedoms to some degree. And then there's an argument that you can have back and forth as to which level is acceptable, which one is tyrannical. And that's a much more healthy argument to have as far as I'm concerned, other than, oh, we just need to completely destroy everything and magically convert everybody to this way of thinking, and then everything's going to be okay. Yeah, that, that's not a serious political program, and yeah, I, I don't like entertaining those type of ideas. Now, to go more in the concrete, um, especially for like political developments, by any chance, did you tune in to the shit show of the Republican primary debate that took place this past Wednesday. I did not watch it. There is nothing there that I'm interested in at all. Uh, None of the candidates interest me. It's only Donald Trump. Uh, He's like 75% in the polls right now. I did watch his interview with Tucker and found it kind of mid, you know, just like a typical bog standard Trump interview where he kind of rambles all over the place and such, but at least he could talk and at least, you know, those are his genuine thoughts on things. But no, I did not pay attention to the, uh, Republican uh, national debate. None of those people are on my side and have my interests. Yeah, I was at a local Republican watch party because I do go to these meetings and I had the displeasure of watching through uh, that debate. And it was just pretty like dumb, low IQ debate. The only highlights I thought that stuck out to me, and this is actually emblematic of where like the U.S. is going, was uh, the Pajit on Pajit incident of violence that occurred between <laughs> Spivak 
uh, Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley over foreign policy. There were some hilarious memes uh, made yeah. of that clip that I saw going around. Yeah. I'll go on record and say this. I'm not a Ramaswamy fan by any stretch of the imagination, but it is curious to me how all the, the neocon cabal and establishment really like is going after this guy, especially after he's even like suggested like uh, reconsidering like military aid to Israel and um, funding the proxy war in Russia against Ukraine. That was like really the only interesting thing about that debate. Like um, in many respects, like uh, Ramaswamy's campaign is like this like really like bootleg, like watered down version of like Trump's 2016 message. Though there is like one thing that um, has kept me from like really supporting him is that he's actually really honest about this, that he like supports increasing legal migration ultimately. And that's like a big thing for me because that is part of like the elect a new people agenda. And I've been arguing for some time that the way the political class in the U.S. is going to try to resolve the immigration question is that they're going to use it under the pretext of like competing with China. And one way they're going to do this is by trying to get like as many like legal so-called skilled migrants here to reach that goal of like one billion Americans that like Matt Iglesias put forward to uh, bring in as many people into like the U.S. through like legal means. And I think like uh, Ramaswamy's vision for immigration uh, aligns with that. But he's like a lot more honest about it than most like Republican politicians, whereas we already know where Democrats stand on that. They're, they're the post-national elect a new people party. And yeah, that's like one of like the many, uh, one of like few reasons I'm not like a Vivek fan, but it is still curious to see that if there's any form of deviancy on like foreign policy, like this guy is just going to get it roasted. Yeah. It seems that the only three candidates in that have declared for, you know, not uh, the Democrats, apparently. The only three that are really worth paying attention to, in my opinion, for any reason at all. Obviously, number one is Donald Trump. Number two would be RFK. And three would be uh, Vivek. And the reason to, the only reason to watch Vivek is basically he's trying to do an almost like, like you mentioned earlier, like a 2016 light uh, version of Trump. But, and he's also outflanking all of the other, you know, approved candidates uh, to the right. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes there. Everybody else up there is just a complete neocon shill. The only one up there who actually has anything worth, um, you know, praising in any way, shape or form is DeSantis for his stuff on COVID. But basically, aside from that, the guy, what else has he done? I mean, he's yeah. done some stuff on the CRT stuff, which is interesting to look at. But he then so he signs an anti CRT thing with his right hand and then he sends a pro Israel bill with his left hand. It's like, OK, uh, those basically just cancel each other out as far as I'm concerned. You know, so you're yeah. back to net zero. And so DeSantis is basically all right. He did a great job on COVID. And that's literally it. Yeah, his campaign, oh man, like talk about like nose diving. Like at this point, uh, Vivek may actually um, surpass him. Like the way, like. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah, because in my opinion, like what Vivek is pushing for is like call center nationalism. Like that's like what it is, like compared to like Trump. Like it's like call center nationalism, but like it's still like better because if he goes like. If, if he takes, like, any position, like, if he were to, like, reverse course on some of his, like, legal immigration expansion stuff, his campaign may actually, like, take off and, like, starts talking about, like, anti-white hate. But, like, DeSantis is just, like, 
He's done this weird strategy of like trying to like dip his toes both like in nationalist circles and the some like neocon like Zionist adjacent circles. And it's like you can't really do that, man. Like, and he's not even like that charismatic either. So he's not. No, no, he doesn't have Trump energy. He doesn't have his charisma. The guy it just looks like a like a two by four when he's standing up there giving his speeches and everything. And the biggest thing is that. You know, up until, you know, this time last year, I mean, basically this time last year, it looked like DeSantis was set to inherit the Republican Party for the for the foreseeable future once Trump was gone. And then he foolishly, you know, either from his own volition or he was uh, coaxed into it by, you know, the party establishment, he decides to run. And this is just absolutely ridiculous because after this election, Trump is gone. He can't run anymore. He's aging out. There's no way. DeSantis is literally the only guy uh, left after Trump. All he had to do was just sit back and relax for four more years, do what he was doing in Florida, gain more support, and then the party would have been his for forever. So now the question comes, okay, well, this guy's either A, a complete dunce because he decided to act uh, before his time here in a very foolish manner and run a stupid campaign, or B, he's controlled opposition to try and get rid of Trump and he got coaxed into it by the Republican establishment. Either which way, uh, I'm not a fan of his presidential run by any means. He should stay in Florida, where at least he could do some good on that front and goad other Republican governors in a right-leaning direction on certain issues. Yeah, DeSantis is like a, basically a one-hit wonder when it came to like the sweet and sour sickness issue. But outside of that, he just really fizzled out. And yeah, it, it's like weird because there's like clearly like he has like been throwing some bones to like the extremely online right but that his um the people who support his campaign ultimately are the ones that are calling the shots uh, which is like a weird segment of like zionist like ultra nationalist types that still want um the US uh to maintain like the status quo on certain policies and he also really bungled the Ukraine thing too he should have had a much more coherent thing saying like no we we're going we're going to stop like all aid to Israel we're not going to engage in this like uh get involved in this like Slavic on Slavic incident of geopolitical violence. Like, no, like we need to get away from this, but yeah, that's the problem. But it, it really goes beyond DeSantis though. I think that there is like a more corrupt um, donor class that owns a lot of these uh, politicians in the Republican party who effectively function as like Sanhedrin slaves anyways to the Zionist lobby. But that's kind of like another day in the sun. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, is the case here. I mean, uh, the reason why I'm paying any attention to Vivek is seeing how much he gets pushed by like conservative ink, by the mainstream media or and anything like this. That's the interesting to watch here. I would never support the guy. I would never vote for the guy simply for the fact that in the long line of uh, presidents putting uh, Vivek's face up there in the presidential hall with George Washington is just unseemly to me uh, as yeah. an American right there. So that's just a complete non-starter uh, for me at the start. I don't care what he says. I don't care how based he is. You mentioned up his immigration issue, which is reason enough not to support him because, you know, I mean, everyone likes to talk about like the illegal immigration is the biggest problem in America when really it's actually the legal immigration. Uh, that's the biggest problem here. There's far more people that come here legally every single year than illegal ones. And as far as I'm concerned, 
it's very weird to me, uh, this line go up mentality where we just need to fill every single prairie, every single mountain, every single, you know, woodland into uh, housing uh, for migrants and for immigrants in America. It's just absurd to me. I mean, I'm an avid outdoorsman. Uh, it's one of the things I spend the most time in hunting and fishing and such. And I'd love to see the right um, take over the environmentalist argument because it's been dominated by Al Gore and the climate change lobby for over 20 years at this point. And we all know that's full of its own bullshit. But yeah, so I, I'm not interested in expanding America's immigration legally or illegally. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, One other point to the, the kerfuffle that Haley and Ramaswamy had is a telltale sign of the demographic change we're seeing because it is emblematic of um, how there is a new elite forming in the U.S. that is has no resemblance, it bears no resemblance to the previous North uh, Northern European elite that governed the country well into like the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, you see this, you see this issue with. Um Great Britain right now and the whole uh, UK is that all those nations right now, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, you know, Britain itself are all ruled by Indians uh, right now. Indians are Pakistanis. And that's coming soon for, you know, the rest of the Anglosphere too, uh, apparently. I mean, look at the heads of the tech companies like um, uh, uh, Mojan uh, or whatever the hell that guy's name is now in control of YouTube, uh, the uh, Sundar Pichai in charge of Google. You know, it's like, it's kind of unsettling, you know, that um, uh, this counter elite is being formed that doesn't reflect the actual population of the country that it's ruling. You know, they're they're not going to have the same level of loyalty to uh, the nation that they are to, you know, their in-group or their globalist project. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, and there's going to be some really anti-Anglo revenge energy among the, these people, and they're going to channel that through their uh, embrace of hate speech policies, whether it's like private or public, and... Uh, trust me, like these people, like when you're dealing with foreigners, um, hate it or love it. You're you're dealing with people that still have like they still have an identity and they're gonna have petty ethnic grievances and they're gonna use the politics of this country, of the country they're like living in, to like air them out and sometimes use public policy to carry it out because there is like a very good chance, like it's not like inconceivable to see like a a strong degree of like whether it's like either like Zionist influence to like go to war with Iran or Indian influence to stoke conflict with China, which because of the fact that India is a huge geopolitical rival of China, once these people capture power, and we've already seen it with the Zionist lobby in the U.S., where they do everything possible to provide as much military aid to Israel and stoke tensions with its. Um, geopolitical rivals such as like Iran and whatnot. So, like that stuff. Like when you allow for a new elite, yeah. And then Nikki Haley going on saying America needs Israel. Yeah, I'm sure the state, the size, a state in the Middle East the size of Delaware has everything in the world to uh, offer America and is absolutely crucial to our uh, national security and securing our borders. It's not like we're six thousand miles away from the Middle East or anything like that. Yeah. It's just it's so farcical on its face. But this has been you know like the Overton window in American politics for at least since I've been alive, if not much further. Yeah, big time. All right, let's shift gears to a much more interesting space, um, especially like intersexual dynamics, because this is one of the more uh, nuanced uh, type of topics that I've gotten into 
almost the same time that I um got into politics because I've followed a lot of like pickup channels and pickup contents when I was like in late high school, early college. And the relations between the sexes since then have just largely deteriorated to a large degree. And it's turned into like a political question now where everybody and their freaking dog is talking about it. And you have great content in this respect. Yeah, it's very interesting how uh, it's now like come to the forefront. Definitely since um, uh, like 2016, for yes, sure. I mean, 2016 100%. just seems like a, a complete watershed moment uh, in history at this point. And it's kind of funny um, right now being back on um, uh, Twitter right now. You're seeing a lot of that uh, like 2016 uh, energy, like kind of sleeping through the cracks again. And, you know, I don't want to overdose on like uh, white pills or anything like that. But it's interesting to see because that era is just still so fresh in our minds when it's coming up on almost a decade now. Uh, but you know, that's, it was, it was a fun time. Oh yes. Yes, absolutely. What actually drew you into like the so-called like red pill, uh, ecosystem? What drew me in basically was just, you know, a lifetime of failure essentially, uh, before this, like, as I was mentioning earlier, I grew up in a very, uh, tricon kind of household and, uh, raised with the idea. It's like, Oh, uh, you got to treat the women, right. And women only ever look for husbands. And I'm not going to be one of those, uh, degenerate, like uh pickup guys or anything like that, because women really like a guy who, uh, you know, is holds firm, his convictions and everything like this. And after getting, you know, shot down and having zero success with that for years and years, I ended up running into uh, a guy who's now my uh, best friend, IRL, who was just much more successful in this regard uh, than me. We ended up living uh, with each other towards the end of our college years and everything. And that's essentially when I started uh, making the change uh, kind of deal. Eventually, I picked up um, Roald Tomasi's uh, first rational mail book. And that was one of the that was actually the first like red pill text uh, that I ever read. Um, I didn't come to the space like through like Chateau Hartiste or like the uh, old pickup artist forums like Return of Kings or anything like that. I came to it uh, first from Rolo stuff and then started reading a bunch of the old material after that. Yeah, Chateau Artis was one one blog I followed that made me more hardcore because I got into this stuff before through like Mystery Method and um, interacting with people that were doing pickup previously. But I will say this, that... I never viewed it as political as some people currently because I was mostly using it for very like utilitarian reasons to just improve my overall dating experience. I wasn't trying to make like a political statement, but I've noticed this that circa 2014, especially when like the great awakening more or less started and which went in hyperdrive in 2016, obviously that there's been like more of like an attachment of like red pill or pickup stuff to like politics. And I've noticed that yeah. lately. Yeah, there definitely is um, an overlap. There is a, there's a huge over index in people in um, like much more far right circles, most notably people around frog Twitter, uh, like bronze age perverts crowd of people who came out of uh, old forums such as uh, Chateau Artiste. I mean, uh, BAP himself uh, was a frequenter of uh, Chateau Artiste um, back in the day. So there are a lot of people that have ended up in much more like right leaning circles from uh, Manosphere blogs. Yeah. Yeah, and going into that topic with respect to the so-called like manosphere, I've been noticing there has been like dissension among those ranks. Um, I personally don't see the this whole so-called manosphere as like a centralized entity. I think that it's really a bunch of like disparate groups and whatnot that have like their own uh thought leaders and strategies and whatnot. But 
what do you think has created like all these rifts and I'd say like overall decline of that entire ecosystem in the last few years? Well, I'd say it's um it's probably a combination of a couple of things. I think there's three major uh, factors. Um, the first one is, and probably the most obvious one, is that uh, the space is now reached a point where it's easier to become monetized than at any other point before. Um, the Manosphere you know, has been a lot around for a long time. Um, you know, depending on who you ask, some people like to point it as far back as 1960s with people like Hugh Hefner. I think that's a little far fetched. Um, this like the the true start of it is probably something in the 90s, like Mystery Method, Neil Strauss's The Game, um, the old forums like uh, the Soswa forums and such is probably where I would peg it uh, where it starts. But to this point now where you have guys that are making their entire living off of this um, space, yeah, you know, whenever you're going to bring money into a space and outrage sells and such, it's obviously going to dilute the original purpose uh, of that space because it's not about, you know, staying on point. It's about making money. The second thing I would say has caused uh, an issue with this is the expansion of social media usage amongst like all stratas of society, most notably from uh, COVID-19 and all the lockdowns and everything like that. When everybody is much more hyper online now, people aren't meeting as much in person. People aren't having like real friend groups or real uh, hobbies or anything like this. So everyone is just spending their time online. They're not having interactions with the opposite sex. So they get their minds filled with the worst aspects of the opposite one and, and think that that's like all of them, you know, hashtag not all right. And the third one I would say is that the Zoomer generation now has reached its uh, adult years. We have a new generation of guys and well, and gals uh, that are now reaching their uh, adult years here. And we can all pretty much see it. The kids are not all right. Yeah. Oh yeah, big time. One thing I have noticed, it you you are correct about like the monetization of that space where it's brought in a lot of grifters and people that are making a quick buck that aren't really that interested in trying to preserve like this ecosystem and actually give long term actual advice, but also. In many respects, they're actually perpetuating a lot of like the really dysfunctional trends that we see now by being just like extremely online. And instead of trying to not only provide good advice, but linking people up in meat space, which I think is much more important because most of the people that I tr- have always like have encountered online, whether it comes to like politics or even like pick up, I always try to meet them in person. That's like the number one thing I always try to do because staying online enhances this agenda, which I thoroughly oppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, whenever you spend uh, a, a ton of time uh, online, you're inevitably going to find other people that are in a similar situation to you to a level that you were just unable to in the past. You know, my mind goes to people like, um, either like really crazy, insane uh, trad cats or people like in the incel community as well. Um, and this is where you get like the endless plethora of stupid fucking takes all over the place on this topic when w- whether it's um, women only will date guys that are over six feet tall or if you like, uh, you know, lick a girl's vagina, it's going to give you cancer. You know, there's other like really stupid uh, arguments that oh come God, out yeah. from like all different sides of the argument here. And it really just comes down to the fact like, you are just spending so much time online. You have zero interaction with like the opposite sex. And if you did, you wouldn't be holding on to these absolutely ridiculous opinions. Oh, big time. Yeah. That whole 
online space is really dysfunctional. And I recommend most people, they just like find one program that online for like improving their dating life or whatever, just stick to it and don't spend much time online unless like you have like a business or like some type of endeavor where you promote stuff because you're just going to go nuts and you're probably going to overdose on a lot of this content and join the ranks of all these people engaging in like e poo flinging type of activity. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the absolute worst stuff. That's, that's the stuff that grinds my gears. The absolute worst uh, in the space is the complete needless, like, and you know, back and forth between other like uh, internet personalities and such just for clout is it just drives me up an absolute wall. You know, it's like, come on guys, do you not have anything better to be doing with your time, you know, than picking a random fight with somebody online, which the other funny thing about this as well is like, what is like the biggest, uh, you know, red pill content creators are what like fresh and fit at this point, And they don't even have like 2 million subscribers. Like this is such a niche of a niche of a niche, like, uh, you know, organization here. If you want to call it that, you know, like everybody here is not remotely as important as they think they are. It really just is about like you, the consumer here. It's just get it, get what you need and then get out. You know, like when people tell me they've listened to like Roll Tomasi for 10 years, I'm like, what? You know, like I'm friends with the guy and I don't think I've watched any, a single one of his shows, maybe like three or four years at this point. Yeah. Th- these guys get addicted from, they go from whether like, like drugs or watching like a lot of trash TV to getting addicted to a red pill content. And they don't really address like their underlying problems and through like taking action and building concrete stuff in the real world. And that's the huge issue, but that's just a whole different can of worms at this point. Yeah. And it's probably going to continue uh, in this direction. There's still going to be, you know, a bunch of like uh, the really, really big accounts that are watering down the actual work in the space to the lowest common denominator in order to get outrage, in order to get clicks, in order to make a quick buck. And they're not going to stay on topic what the space is actually about. They're just there. You know, it's it's much more uh, quantity over quality kind of deal, which is why. I always point people to like my buddy Ryan Stone, who I think is pretty much all quality. You know, yes. his, his his work is pretty much like the best work in the entire space at this point. So if you're going to like take a look at it and sift through all the bullshit and all the name calling and everything. And if you actually just want to learn about what you should do when your wife is three months pregnant and is starting a fight with you, how do you handle it properly? Go check out some of Ryan's work. 100%. I endorse Ryan Stone's work as well. Mm-hmm. Well, well, man, let's uh wind this a bad boy down because this was a great conversation red hawk and i find your content to be quite unique and i think i'd be doing you a disservice by not letting you plug your work so feel free to promote your stuff and tell my listeners where they can keep up with your latest projects yeah much uh, appreciated man as of right now the two main you know platforms for me uh, obviously number one is uh, my twitter account at red pill hawk Basically, it's just it's basically just there for shit posting. You're not going to see like uh, amazing, you know, uh, takes from me uh, on that front out there. Um, my own channel, Red Hawk, I do show every Thursday uh, called Man's Hour, where there's a plethora of topics ranging from politics to the the great outdoors to history to you know intersexual dynamics like the rp stuff and then you guys can also take a look at more of my uh, political activism in the dissident rights sphere at uh, what is the old glory club and i've run that with a bunch of um our american guys on the dissident rights sphere we do uh shows every thursday we put out three articles a week 
Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we also are uh, working on, you know, chapter organizations, much in the model of like the Freemasons and such. Uh, and, and we're in the process of setting those up all over the United States right now. So if you guys are interested in doing more uh, local activism with people who actually get it and who want to fix things and aren't, you know, your establishment conservative types, maybe that's something you want to get interested in. But uh, thanks for having me on, man. This was tons of fun. No problem, man. I really enjoyed it. And to all my listeners, thank you so much for listening in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.